Welcome to the Before 30 Podcast, inspiring conversations about life and work with your host, Auntie Janine and Nephew Trey. Welcome to Before 30. This is Auntie Janine, and we're back in Financial Literacy Month with an encore edition of our student loan show, right? We're talking about student loans today, and Nephew Trey and I are really excited to bring back our guest, Brenton Harrison of Ultra Borrowers Academy. We're talking about all all the things related to student loans, right? How did you get them? What type of loans there are? The repayment options and how to make sure that you are not burdened by and your credit isn't impacted by student loan debt default. We know we're in a crisis. It's back in the news. President Biden is talking about ways and putting together a strategy to help Americans pay down their student loan debt and eliminate it. And we want you to do the same thing. So stay tuned, listen to today's show, but listen all the way to the end because we have a special offer for our Before 30 listeners. Brenton at Ultra Borrowers Academy has a promo code so that you can participate in his course to help you eliminate your student loan debt. So stay tuned. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's bring our guest on. Hear from us every week. I'm excited to have another male voice in the conversation. So, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so what All we're right. going to do? We're going to bring in our financial advisor, Brenton Harris. He is a financial advisor who has spent over a decade empowering people to take control of their money so their money doesn't take control of them. Uh, He teaches strategies for overcoming the burden of debt, juggling family and money and establishing a financial foothold for those who who were never taught the principles of financial literacy. His work has been featured in publications such as Business Insider, USA Today, CNBC, and Yahoo Finance. In 2019, he launched Ultra Borrowers Academy, an online course for people struggling to take control of their student loan debt. Everybody, let's give him a welcome. Welcome Thank you guys for having me. Yes, thank you for uh, joining us. We're super excited. Um, And we've talked about kind of our personal story um, with student loan debt. Auntie Janine didn't have any. I had a little bit, but just tell us a little bit about yourself, Brenton, and why you're, why you're so passionate about this uh, topic. Yeah, absolutely. So I my story starts in, in Nashville. I was born and raised in Nashville, uh, and I'm the son of a black physician and a black nurse by training who actually ended up being a real estate agent. Um, but because of the environment in which I grew up. I grew up around a lot of young black professionals because in Nashville, there's a little corner of the city where uh, there are three HBCUs. There's Fisk, there's Tennessee State and there's Meharry Medical College, all within like a mile, mile and a half of each other. So people who went to those schools, those were my parents contemporaries. So it was nothing for me to, you know, grow up and in my parents social circle, be black physicians, black attorneys, black PhDs, uh, you know, probably the first people in their family to have earned a high income or income of that level. And with that income came debt. So to me, you know, I, it, it was not foreign to talk to people who were in their 50s who were still paying on student loans. 
kids and now are worried about having their kids go through that same situation. So it's really just something that I grew up in and grew up seeing. Um, and it was something that I thought, you know what, there's got to be a way to kind of break this cycle. Uh, and, and a lot of times I felt like that knowledge base was missing. So if it's missing, not only is it a personal opportunity, but it's also a business opportunity to be the one that kind of provides that resource. Yeah. And if you see this with upper middle class affluent families, just imagine the families who didn't come. You know, you have people who were who were not doctors or attorneys who didn't have two dual high income you know, resources to help their children go to school. So it's not foreign. And I don't think it's even anything to be um, ashamed of, but there's some solutions. And so that's why we're so excited to have you on this show. And for those of you, you know, I love networking. So I met <laughs> Brenton in Orlando at the FinCon conference. It's been, is this year three? Has it been three years ago? Yeah, it was three years. Yeah, three years ago. The weather was great, too. Um, we were sitting so outside having breakfast. Yeah. Huh? Oh, sorry. I, I, the question, so was it, kind of listening to your opening story, Brenton, was it something personal, maybe you or your immediate family experienced, or was it you got to see student debt through the lens of kind of the, the extended community or your parents' network? Um, so I, I heard your intro when Janine said that she was fortunate. I was fortunate as well for, for a couple of reasons. I had a good portion of my uh, schooling that was paid for by scholarship. Okay. I, I, I went to a school that was really heavy on SAT prep. Um, so my grades in high school weren't the best, but I, I really uh, brought it home with the SAT score. So I got a scholarship for a good portion. And then fortunately, my parents were able to finance the rest. Okay. Uh, and when I say fortunate enough to finance the rest, it's one of those things where looking back on it, maybe they shouldn't have financially. But at the time, it was something that they wanted to do because they didn't want my sister and I to be burdened with that debt. Um, so when I came out, I had the good fortune of being able to have the freedom to choose a job that I liked instead of a job that like had to make a certain amount of money because I had to pay back the debt. Um, I had the freedom to do things like purchase homes before many of my friends were able to, um, not because of any like heightened level of intellectuality, uh, not because of any heightened level of my career. It was literally just, I didn't have the student loans and they did. Um, so to me, it's one of those things where it's like, man, it really is a, a, a terrible feeling to, yeah, you know, it's good for you to not have it, but look at people who are bright and talented uh, and have the capacity to do certain things that are being held back by the debt. So that's why it's so um, big a topic for me and why it brings me passion. So is there really a student loan debt crisis in America? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, not only is there a crisis, I don't think people understand the depth of the crisis, um, partly because the debt itself is increasing. So if you look at just the average student loan debt over the past couple decades, the jump has been enormous. But it's also because the repayment options are not something that the average person who's just going on Google trying to figure out what they should do is going to be able to comprehend. It actually takes sitting down and taking some time to walk through those options in a way that most people don't or don't have the time to do. So if you have a lot of debt and you don't understand the options to repay it, you have a really, really tough storm that's brewing. And that's kind of what you're seeing with people. Uh, and it's definitely a crisis. 
And does the crisis start with like just people being in default or just the high number of people who are taking out loans for higher education? Um, you know, what, I, what I'm going to say may not be the most popular thing, <laughs> uh, but to me, I think that number one, there are people out there who just don't have the resources to pay for college. So there are some where it's just like, I have to go. The school is more expensive than it's ever been. So I have to take out a tremendous amount of loans in order to do what I want to do, which is graduate from college. Mm -hmm. I think there are other people who finish and they thought that that school that they went to had, you know, a, a guaranteed option where as long as I get a degree from this college, I'm going to get a, a, a job afterwards that pays me X amount of dollars. And they graduate and find that out that that's just not the case. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just kind of an unfortunate realization of the fact that we don't have an economy anymore where you can get some degree from a college and just know for a fact that you're going to make a certain income. But I think there's a third group out there, and this is the unpopular part. My wife and I actually argue about this all the time. I think that just by the nature of certain industries, there are some degrees where you just shouldn't be going to a college of a certain price if you're trying to pursue that degree. You know, I'm not going to get into specifics of which those are, but if you know you're going into, <laughs> you know, okay, so for, for example, uh, you know, I was a management and finance major. So finance, yes, it might have some specificity there where it's like, yeah, you can go and you can get a job in this particular area. But business management is a very general degree. And the job that you get after graduation is basically based on how much did you hustle to get internships and make connections while you were in school? Yeah. Um, you could say that marketing is the same way. You could say that communications and and, you know, uh, public psychology. relations. Exactly. Psychology, yeah. elementary yeah. education, um, where you actually need to start making some tough decisions of I really love this school, but if I'm in a field we're coming out, I might be projected to make $40,000, $50,000. Do I really need to pay $150,000 for the degree for that type of earning potential? Yeah. And I don't think that's a part of the conversation that we have as much as we should. Yeah. So I think on that vein, so what, it, it kind of sounds like there's a proactive mindset you can kind of have to, to eliminate or to minimize student debt. So let's kind of like go all the way back to the beginning. So someone is thinking about whether they're, you know, um, thinking about pursuing higher education for the first time or they're going back to school. What are kind of those fundamental things they need to consider or have a top of mind when thinking about how to finance this education? Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that if, if you're trying to finance an education, unless it's something that has like a dedicated career path to a high salary. So, for example, if you're a physician, you know that if you go through all of your training, you're going to get to the point where you make a certain amount guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you have a more generalized profession that you're pursuing, to me, I look at the, the amount of money it's going to take to get the degree and the average earning potential. And what I want to avoid is I want to avoid any multiples. And I'll explain what that means. If I know that the average income of my profession is $50,000, I don't want to pay more than one times my earning potential 
for that degree in terms of the debt that I take. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if like I don't want to leave if I'm going to make $50,000 owing more than $50,000. Yeah. Okay. And you can take that same philosophy into whatever degree you're pursuing, because when you leave and you're saying, OK, I make 50, but now I owe 75. Now I owe 100. Now I owe 125 mm-hmm. or you know, I make 30 and I'm owe 45. That becomes a deeper hole to dig out of. And you're not in a dedicated career path where you're guaranteed to have increases in income. So it's just yeah. a tough um, chart to path. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people you see, and I'm sure you see this a lot, Brenton, in your profession, people looking at, hey, maybe I should do my first two years in a community college, um, a local school. I can work, I can save, stay at home, pay cash for these first two years. And then the last two years when I go deep into my major, uh, maybe transition to another state school and maybe not a private institution. Um, So I think really having to say, I still want to have this college experience, but how can I have it so that I'm not coming out of school in worse financial situation than going into it? And I think a lot of people don't think about that because even if it's not the child, then it's the parents taking on this debt, which is another decision to have to make because if the parent takes on the debt for the student, what are some of the challenges that you've seen with your clients, with parents who do finance their kids' education through student loan debt? For parents, the tough thing is if the parents had enough to pay for the kids' schooling without taking loans, they obviously wouldn't have taken the loans. Right. So if they've gotten to their 40s and 50s and they're needing to take out a loan for their kid to go to school, well, just by the nature of the fact that they had to take the loan, it probably implies that they're not in the financial situation they should be for their own retirement, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't cash flow it themselves mm-hmm. and they couldn't pay for it uh, straight out of any other accounts that they had. So now you've added on a debt that you don't benefit from if you're the parent financially beyond just seeing your, your child go to the school that they want to go to. And it just muddies the waters. It just adds another barrier to them reaching their financial goals. And again, it's not as if uh, unless their kid had that guaranteed path to a high income, once the child graduates, they can automatically say, all right, well, we took this out for you. Now you can be the one to pay it back. And I see that all the time where parents take out student loans for their children's education with the intention of passing that debt onto the child when they graduate. And then the child is 25, 26, 27, 28 and still hasn't figured it out yet mm-hmm. to be able to make that payment. So the parent's the one making it and Ooh. not making the retirement contribution or not paying off their house. And it's just a, a tough cycle. And then that loan is that loan is calculated at the parents. The parents and I know we don't want to jump too far ahead. Yeah. But that's what I'm <laughs> to think, Trey, what were you going to say? No, that's what I was going to say. As I think that loan might there might be an interest rate. I don't know. Favorable, unfavorable. Um, and it's associated with the parent's income or maybe the parent's profile as opposed to kind of the student. And so, yeah, yeah. You know, parent plus loans, which are federal loans that parents can take out on behalf of their children, are loans that take into consideration the finances or the financial profile of the parent. Whereas other federal student loans, they typically don't really they don't really care about your credit. It's more about if you're an undergrad, there's just a certain amount you can borrow. And if you're in grad school, there's an increased amount that you can borrow and you're making that loan as a student with no income at the time. So 
if you're in law school or a PhD program or a master's program, well, you can take more debt than you did in undergrad, but they're not necessarily asking, well, what are you going to earn after you get this degree before they give you the loan? They just give you the loan and make you finish out the rest later. Okay. Okay. So just real quick, once again, what are the different types of student loans that, that you see people having to pay back? If um, if your your listeners slash viewers are under the age of 30, then probably the only loans that they're familiar with are loans that are called direct loans. And there's two types of direct loans. There's subsidized loans and unsubsidized loans. A subsidized loan is typically a loan that you're going to take out during undergrad. And all that means is that any interest that's accruing on that loan is covered by the federal government while you're in school. So if you have five, ten, twenty thousand dollars of interest that's accruing on that loan, you don't have to worry about it. And when it comes time to pay it back, all you have to pay back is exactly what you borrowed. Right. If I borrow ten thousand, that's how much I'm going to have to pay back. An unsubsidized loan is typically a graduate school loan and interest while you're in school is not covered by anybody. So you might have taken out twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and by the time you finish schooling, it's grown to thirty-five. Well, you have to pay thirty-five. It doesn't matter um, that you weren't able to pay during those years. The unsubsidized loan is going to see that balance increase. Now, if you have listeners, viewers that are over the age of say thirty-three, thirty-four, uh, then they probably have loans that are direct loans, but they might also have loans that are called Stafford loans or Perkins loans. And those were loans that are just an older version of federal student loans or school-based loans that have since been taken off the menu. So you can't take those loans anymore. But people could still be paying those back if they may have gone to college like Mm -hmm. I did um, in 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 the 90s. Absolutely. So you have people who are in those age groups who are trying to navigate repayment programs and forgiveness programs that are really only offered for things like the direct loans, but they have older loans. And that actually is a big pitfall that many people fall into is they're paying on these plans, thinking they're going to have loans forgiven or thinking they have certain options Mm. just to find out that they have an older loan that might not qualify for that repayment plan or that forgiveness plan. Oh yeah. Cause you got to talk a little bit about it. So say for instance, you know, I wasn't maybe the most proactive in thinking about, you know, what loan, what type of loan I'm going to get, how much. And now I'm at this point where, you know, I've graduated. I have, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars in loans. I'm starting to make a job, have some income. What kind of framework or what how should I approach paying my loans back? Like what where's the starting point? Like I just I got I got bills now. I got a car payment. I have rent. I have all these other bills. How should I create a plan of attack to you know, pay off my loans. I would say that there are there's many types of federal student loan repayment programs. So I'm going to start with those okay. of the many types. There are probably two that the average person needs to choose between. The first type is a standard loan repayment. And that is as straightforward as can be. It's just like any other debt you've ever had, like a car loan. Uh, They give you a certain period of time that you have to pay it. And whatever your payment is, is designed to pay that loan in full within that period of time. If you have a 10 year repayment period, whatever you're paying, that debt's going to be completely gone at the end of the 10 years. 
you have some people who graduate and they can afford that plan while also saving, while also investing, while also paying down other debts. And if they can, then that's great. But many, many graduates, new graduates don't have that option, right? It's like, I don't have anything in savings. I might've had a few thousand dollars of credit card debt that I've taken on during school. I can't afford a couple hundred dollars a month for a student loan payment. And for those people, there are plans that are called income driven plans. Income driven plans, in my opinion, are by far the most flexible type of loan repayment plan for any student loan. Because what they do with these plans is they base your payment off of a percentage of something called your discretionary income. So the loan payment that you make literally has no connection to your loan balance at all. I could owe a hundred times more on my loans than you do. But if we have the same discretionary income and are on the same income driven payment plan, our payment will be the same. And the great thing for a new graduate about these plans is that the way they calculate that income is they partly use a number from your previous year's tax return. So if you think about this, if you didn't work or didn't earn more than, say, twenty, twenty five thousand dollars in the year you graduated and you file your taxes that year, you're going to have a tax return that says you basically made no money. So when they do the calculation for that income driven plan, they'll do the calculation and they will give you a payment of zero dollars. And that sounds like something that's too good to be true. But we see it every single year where we have our students who are graduating file their taxes in that last year before they graduate. They get that income driven plan. They calculate a payment of zero dollars. And the second great thing about these income driven plans is if you pay on it for 20 or 25 years and at the end of that time, there's still balances left on your loans. They forgive the rest. So what you're doing by locking in that zero dollar payment is number one, you're giving yourself the flexibility to address those other areas, but you're also getting a year of credit towards forgiveness without actually paying any money. Nice. That's real nice. Yeah. So in year two, what happens? In year two, it actually is a continuance of that good fortune. Uh, Let's say that you have somebody who graduates in May of this year. And they use their tax return from the previous year. They lock in a zero dollar payment for many people. If they haven't used up what's called their grace period, they're going to have six months where they don't have to worry about their student loans at all. Okay, so the person graduated in May and in November or December, they sign up for an income driven plan. They do the calculation and they have a zero dollar payment where they're going to have that zero dollar payment for an additional 12 months. So if you keep track of that, they have 18 months where there's no payment at all. So 12 months later, now we're in November or December of 2021, Mm -hmm. their loan servicer is going to come to them and they're going to ask them to do what's called recertify their income, which is essentially meaning send us your most recent tax return so we can recalculate your payment. Well, remember that same person only worked six months in the year before. So even if they're making $50,000, their tax return is only going to show Mm $25,000. So they're going to do that calculation. And when they do that calculation, they might have a payment of 10 or 20 or 30 bucks a month for another 12 months. So really that person could get two and a half years out of school before they're paying more than $50, and And they're getting credit towards forgiveness that entire time. So if they choose to pay more than that, they can, but all they have to pay is that amount that's listed. 
Oh, that's some good information. That is, that is. Question for you, because so my roommate, I know he was, can you talk a little bit about forbearance? Does that, Yeah, I've heard that word before and I've heard people use it. Can you kind of explain what that is or? Mm -hmm. So there are two options um, for essentially pausing your loan payments. One of them is deferment and one of them is forbearance. Deferment is something that you get when you have things like uh, being in school, uh, or being in a training program for a degree, if you're getting a master's or doing an internship, you might be able to defer your loans. Okay. Forbearance is when you essentially have a hardship. Okay. You have a medical hardship or you have a financial hardship where you're essentially attesting to the fact that you're unable to make the payment that you're being asked to make. Mm-hmm. The real difference between deferment and forbearance comes into play with having a subsidized loan or an unsubsidized loan. If you have a subsidized loan, remember, that's the loan where the government covers your interest. Mm -hmm. Well, they also cover your interest during periods of deferment. So if you have a subsidized loan and it's in deferment, you don't have to worry about the interest. But if you have a subsidized loan and it's in forbearance, they're not going to cover that interest. So even though you've attested to a hardship, that interest is still something you're going to have to deal with uh, when you start paying again. That makes sense. That makes so sense. we got forbearance, we got deferments, we got another um, D word, default. <laughs> and you know, going back to this student loan crisis, you know, what are some of the mistakes you've seen people make when paying off their loan? So say they don't, we've already talked about like how to get the zero payment that first year, how to get lower payments and the credits. But what are some things, and I'm thinking default, like just saying I'm not going to pay it. What are what happens to people, to their credit, to their ability to buy, to that loan if they don't pay the loan? You know, with any debt, just refusing to pay it and ignoring people when they're calling you is probably the absolute worst thing you can do. I mean, you know, I said I, you, you, you talk to people and they're like, oh, they've been calling me all week and I'm just ignoring the call. Like, man, if you just answer the phone and tell them what you can and can't do, you have a much better chance of this reflecting better on your credit, on your payment history than just mm-hmm. ignoring them. And there is no place where you see that more than with student loan defaults. I mean, I wouldn't wish student loan default on my worst enemy because when you default on a federal student loan in particular, you don't want to default with the federal government because they have the ability to garnish your wages. They have the ability to garnish your tax refund. So if you ignore them, eventually at some point in time, they're going to come get your check, whether you want them to have it or not. Um, So it's a it's a very, very big deal. In addition to those things, if you have a student loan in default, which essentially means that you're six months behind on a payment, um, actually nine months behind on a payment, excuse me. If you're in default, they take your wages, they take your tax refund if they need to. You are ineligible for forgiveness programs. You're limited to the type of payment programs you can have. Uh, It's just a terrible, terrible place to be. So the first part of that to just avoid default is, listen, you're much better off just calling your loan servicer and telling them your current situation than you are to just not make the payment. The late payment is going to stay on your credit report for seven years. And the default status is something that's going to stay on your credit report unless you do something called rehabilitating the loan. What happens when you rehabilitate a loan is you go to your loan servicer and you tell them, I want to get this loan out of default. They're going to calculate your payment and they're going to say, hey, we're going to take that discretionary income number that I described and we're going to make you pay 15 percent of that. 
And if you can do that payment nine months out of a 10 month period, odd statement, but it's technically nine months out of a 10 month period, what will happen is they will remove the default from the status on your credit report, but the late payments will stay. But removing the default is still a big deal. It restores all the privileges that you have in terms of the payment plans and having the loans forgiven. Um, the late payments are definitely something to overcome. But rehabilitation is an option for those people. And another added benefit is when you have your loans in default, what's basically happened is they've sent your debt to a collections agency. And that collections agency is adding penalties and fees and interest as they try to collect the debt. When you go through default and rehabilitation at the end of that process, some of those people actually see those penalties and interest knocked off. Mm -hmm. So you could actually see your loan balance decreased if you can make it all the way through the process. Awesome. OK, well, that's good to know. Um, so, what I'm taking is no, no defaults. You try to get a car, you try to get a home and they see that on your credit report. It's it's a non-starter. That's um, like these people with these two digit um, interest rates for car mm -hmm. loans and other mm -hmm. other things and trying to buy a house, not paying those student loans could stop you from reaching yeah. some of your other financial goals um, mm -hmm. of ownership. So question for you. So is student debt, is that is is that something that is personally liable for? So say, for instance, there's someone who's single or they're about to get into a relationship with someone. The student debt transfer and become like uh, debt of the community property, community property, or how does that work? I'm just curious. So it depends on the state where you live uh, and it depends on what you did when when the person took on the debt. Uh, here's an example. You might move to what's called a community property state like a California, mm -hmm. Texas, I think Louisiana. Uh, there's like a collection of community property states. And in those states, both the assets that you take on as a couple, including the income that you earn and the debt that you take on while you're married is considered the property and responsibility of both parties. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a community property state and you get divorced, well, if that debt was acquired while you were married, a court could come and say, no, we're splitting that obligation right down the middle. And you are equally as responsible as your former spouse, even if it wasn't for your schooling. If you're not in a community property state, there's still that possibility is probably a reduced possibility. Mm -hmm. But where you do have that responsibility, no matter what, is if you co-signed for a loan mm -hmm. uh, or if a loan was taken out with the assumption that your income was going to be used to help repay it, then the court could also make that responsibility. Um, if you if you co-sign uh, co on a loan, it doesn't matter what your status is. That's your loan, too. So it doesn't matter if married, unmarried, if your name is on the loan, it's your responsibility. It's on your credit. And if that person doesn't pay, it impacts your credit just like it does theirs. Unfortunately, we've seen that with clients who uh, you have a, a wife who co-signed for a husband's loan. They get divorced. They go their separate ways. The husband is not making payments and the late payments are hitting the ex-wife's credit report. Credit report, yeah. Mm -hmm. Terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. But you also have couples who they might not have co-signed on the loan, but maybe I'm making three times what my spouse is making and she wouldn't have taken out that student loan had she known that my income wouldn't be there to help repay it. Mm -hmm. A court could still see that as something that I'm liable to help pay back. Okay.
Well, so let's talk about interest rates really quickly. Um, and even if your loan is in default, you said sometimes they will drop off penalties and interest rates. Can you make a deal to make a lump sum payment and negotiate? Say you owe $20,000, but you've come into $100,000. You're like, I'm going to call up these creditors, see if they'll let me pay $12,000 and I'll clear the whole loan. Like, is there, can we make a deal in default? And then also, you know, what about interest rates? Is any of that negotiable? Is there a way to refinance these loans? Interest rates on federal loans aren't negotiable because they're not really based on any individual person. They're just based on, hey, if you're taking out a loan at this period in time, this is what it is. Um, if you're taking out private student loans, negotiable isn't the word I would use, but they can be changed based on how strong your finances are. So if you're taking out private student loans, you can refinance a private student loan and get a lower rate based on your income, the the dependability of that income and your credit score. Uh, so if you can show strong, consistent earnings and you have a good credit score, you can refinance a private loan with a, a lower rate private loan. And you can also refinance a federal loan with a lower rate private loan. But with federal loans, the rate just is what it is. All right. Well, this has been some great information. Yeah. But, you know, I was gonna oh, say, the last thing, we just wanted to hear like a success story. What is there a client that you've had whose you know, situation kind of really um, stuck out to you and you were able to see them um, kind of, you know, they were deep in it, but then they were able to come out on the side on top. Like, could you mind sharing a success story with us real quick? Yeah. You know, uh, a story comes to mind. Obviously, I can't share names, but I had a, a client of mine. Uh, who took our course, Ultra Bars Academy. And when they took the course, uh, they were interested in having their loans forgiven through a program called Public Service Loan Forgiveness. Public Service Loan Forgiveness is a federal forgiveness program where if you work for like a nonprofit or a government mm -hmm. entity yeah. uh, while meeting other rules for 10 years, you can have your loans completely forgiven. So they were wanting to do that uh, but what was happening was they were working for an employer that they didn't think qualified because the employer was a nonprofit. But if you read the fine print, it says a nonprofit 501c3 organization. Mm -hmm. So their organization wasn't a 501c3 and they're thinking that it just doesn't qualify for the program. So they were pretty bummed out. One of the things that they didn't know is it can be a nonprofit 501c3 and that will qualify as an eligible institution. But you can also work for a company that offers qualifying services. And even if it's not a 501c3 nonprofit, that could be eligible. So an example would be things like law enforcement or public safety. And this person just so happened to work for a public safety organization. So we uh, did some digging. We found out that that program did indeed qualify. And we actually went to her loan servicer and had them give her eight years of credit wow. that she didn't think she was going to be able to get towards a 10 year program. So she's thinking she might have to start a new job at a nonprofit and pay 10 more years. And we were able to restore that credit. And now she only has to pay ten, uh, two more years of payments before she has her loans completely distinguished. That is awesome. Like, and I'm sure a lot of you who are listening don't know that there are people like Brenton out here who you can partner with and work with 
um, to walk through this process, paying off debt, paying off student loan debt. So Brenton, tell our listeners a little bit about how you work with your clients, um, you know, how you coach them, set up programs and how they can get in touch with you. Yeah. Uh, so I have two separate businesses. And for compliance reasons, I always make sure people understand they're separate. When you're a financial advisor, um, you know, you, you have to make sure that you are always uh, making clear how you're operating. Uh, I have a financial advisory practice under BrentonHarrison.com. And that's for people who are looking for individual one-on-one planning. And a part of that planning that we do uh, is student loan help. Ultra Bars Academy is a separate course that we started just because of the fact that you can't meet everybody and uh, work with everybody individually who needs help with their student loans. So Ultra Bars Academy is just an online course, but it's a number of sessions that takes you through everything from federal loans, private loans, repayment plans, forgiveness programs. So for someone who's looking for like a self-paced option where they can learn at their own pace, uh, Ultra Bars Academy is a fit where you can go. Uh, we have lesson summaries, videos that you can keep forever. Uh, and we think it's a really, really good resource. And if you're interested at the end of that program, you can actually set a time to have a one-on-one consultation uh, with myself or a member of my team to talk about your specific finances. So that sounds like a DIY, right? Do it your a DIY, do it yourself kind of thing. <laughs> but what if I don't have time? Brenton, I don't have time to sit and watch these wonderful videos, right? Mm -hmm. I I travel for work, you know, before COVID. (laughs) You know, I just don't, I'm, I'm you know, I got a family, I have all sorts of things and I'm just not good at the do-it-yourself because I don't follow through. What if I just wanted to work with you one-on-one or someone Mm -hmm. on your staff, how does that work? So that would be engaging us through our financial advisory practice. So you would reach out to us. We would set a conversation where we can talk about what you're interested in doing, what you're already doing financially. And for those people, student loans would just be one part of it because we talk about other types of debt. We talk about investments, budgeting, all that and the like. Uh, And from there, we would give you options on what it means to engage as a client of our firm. So we have some people who work with us through 90 day engagements where they have some goals that they're trying to tackle over the next three months. Uh, And those are our things where we're essentially at their disposal for the next three months. And then we have other people who want ongoing planning or for them, we have a private client group where throughout the year, there's dedicated services that they get as a member of that group. That may be things like uh, webinars on different financial topics. It may be an analysis of their finances each year, uh, but just a, a more expansive list of services as compared to just taking the course. Okay. Nice. That sounds good. So tell everybody how to get in touch with you. So, you know, phone, email, website, and we'll also post this um, after it'll be in the show notes. So you guys who are listening, you can look down in the show notes. You'll see all the details on how to get in touch with Brenton and his firm. Um, And then on the last screen of our video, you'll have that too. But Brenton, in the meantime, how can they, how can they find you? Uh, The best way to reach me for people who are interested in financial advisory services is through my website, BrentonHarrison.com. 
Uh, there's a contact me link there as well as a, a link where you can set an appointment if you want to talk. If you're interested in taking the course Ultra Borrowers Academy, you can go to ultraborrowers.com and there's a number of free resources on that site. We actually have a guide, uh, a one page guide that kind of walks you through some of the income driven plans we discussed. And it also has an introductory video uh, where you can familiarize yourself with some of the concepts that we teach in the course. So that's ultraborrowers.com. Nice. All right, y'all. Y'all heard and that. Ready to close, Brenton. What is one just you know simple piece of advice you would give to all of our listeners um, that you know they can take, they can walk away from this um, episode with, and, and make a difference in kind of their student their student loan debt? Uh, I would say that everything that we're talking about is stuff that I it was self taught. There's no like special library of student loan advice. Like this is all information that's on the federal student aid website uh, or, you know, is Googleable. And what I would say is no matter your situation, if you're feeling overwhelmed by loans, you have the ability with 30, 45 minutes of dedicated time to radically increase the amount of knowledge that you have. And once you have that knowledge, you can actually kind of see the path for different strategies you can take to completely transform your relationship with your student loans. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody you trust who can give you that information, find that person. But if you are a DIYer, with 30, 45 minutes of dedicated time, you can do wonders in terms of your level of knowledge regarding your loans. All right. Well, there are options out there for all of you. Um, and it's not too late, right? So if it's you, if you have a sibling that's on their way to school and they're considering loans, if you're thinking about going back to grad school um, and you're looking for ways to finance that, parents, um, young professionals before 30, you got great information you know, look up Brenton, hit him up on his website. If you're trying to get from under all of this debt, yeah. you know, check out the class. I think it's, you know, and we're in such a great time where you can find out this information. You can make a, a small financial investment, um, support a black business and, and also get yourself out of debt. So Brenton, we are so happy um, that you were able to spend time with us today. Thank you so much. Well Thank you. And I actually have one last thing. Um, yeah. we, we've set up a discount code for your, your listeners as well. Oh, well, fantastic. Hey. There is no excuse for y'all yeah. to go on <laughs> and sign up. If they're interested in the course, they can actually type in the code before 30 uh, and, and they will get a discount on the course offerings as well. All right. Y'all yeah. hear that? Before that That's right. Before 30, before three zero. Exactly. Um, and get your discount code. Well, we thank you for that too. And thank you so much. Um, and we thank you all for joining today. And just remember, at Before 30, you are a masterpiece, masterpiece and a work, and a work in, progress. in progress. Thank you for listening to the Before 30 podcast. Help us grow by subscribing and commenting on today's show. The Before 30 podcast is owned and operated by Before 30 LLC. Be sure to connect with us on our website, at before-30.com and follow and like us at Before30 on all social media platforms.